Reading this morning is short, so I'm just going to read it myself. It's from Colossians. Okay, so Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. I always, when the preacher said Colossians as a little kid, I always heard galoshes. I wondered what they had to do with, with uh, Jesus Christ, but anyway. Uh, we are studying five of the names of Jesus Christ in this Advent season. Uh, this week we're going to focus on the name Creator. Uh, you'll see the, the poster board here every week will change with a different uh, aspect of Christ and a different name. Uh, and uh, this is just, a, again, to, get, to have a stop and to think, not about things that we didn't know, but to think how great it is, how great is the thing that we know about Jesus Christ. Uh, and uh, it's important, and you get to a certain point when there's not lots of new information uh, in the scriptures, uh, but it's important to reflect on how important that information is and what it means to me personally as well as to the world. Jesus is our creator, and there are incredible uh, verses or, or uh, descriptions of the creatorness of Christ. In the New Testament, John has uh, a tremendous one, maybe the most famous, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, the first few verses of that first chapter, talk about Jesus as our creator. Uh, the one that I'm going to read in Colossians, and another one in uh, the epistle to the Hebrew believers, to Jewish believers, the first verses of the first chapter in that talk a lot about Christ as our creator. And uh, let me have you turn here to Colossians 1, and I'll read 15 to 20. And, and as I'm reading this, I can't help, uh, and I've forgotten his name, Andrew Peterson, uh, uh, composed and, and organized a wonderful song of this verse. He, he's the image of the invisible God, and uh, I don't, how many of you have heard Andrew Peterson sing that? You haven't. Well, you'll have to go to YouTube, plug this verse in, and, and when Andrew Peterson comes up, you'll have to listen to it. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The first sentence of, Gen of Genesis tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first sentences of the Gospel of John, the, letters to the, the letter to the Colossians that I just read, as well as the letter to Hebrew Christians, supply the additional information that it was God in the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ, 
who actually accomplished the work of creation. Today's reading from Colossians echoes the words of Genesis in verse 16 when it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator. And, and this is what is important in this, and it will become clear as we go through the passage. All of our, under, of our struggles in society today seem to focus on us trying to find who we are and how we fit in. Questions of sex and gender uh, and the questions of race and ethnicity uh, the frustrations that come from people who feel so left out and so alone and so disjointed from creation that they, they have developed such a resentment and a hatred that they're willing to kill others for no reason other than their own inner frustration. If we would know who we are and how we fit in, then we have to first know that God that Jesus Christ is our creator. He is our creator, so what does it mean to be his creature? Verse 17 makes it clear that as our creator, he existed before all created things. And this is the consistent message of the gospel and of all the New Testament writings, that Jesus pre-existed all of creation, that he existed with God. He was God and was with God. And it says in John chapter 1. It also says that in him all things hold together. That's, I think that's a really cool phrase. Uh, which means that he remains intimately involved in sustaining us along with all of the rest of creation. So it's not like Jesus set things in motion like a machine and then walked away from it. He's intimately associated, and we'll find out in a minute just how intimately associated with his own creation. His spirit continues to knit all things together, our bodies, our societies, even broken as they are. Without his spirit, we would never be able to unite together in any form to do what is best for the greater good. That is a gift from God. The societies that we have, the nations that we have, that keep us from destroying ourselves, that hold us accountable, that is a gift from His Spirit to us. We didn't come up with that on our own. He has knit together our bodies, our societies, our universe, and even the very atoms in it. The matter of our universe. And maybe some of you remember the phrase, Ex nihilo nihilo fit, that, that out of nothing God made everything that there is. It was out of nothing. And it is true that the matter, the stuff of our universe, he created out of nothing. But the life that animates us was not created out of nothing. It existed in him. And he has spoken us into being out of that abundance, that light and life that is in him. John's Gospel says that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
He's not uncaring. He's not unconnected to us. Rather, his love is our life and our light. What he created, what he created with his word, he spoke into being with his word, he sustains with his thought. You have the picture in the pagan world, the, the, the legend of Atlas, the, the titan or the, the, the I, I'm not even sure whether he's a god or a demagogue, but there's this figure of this, this man, this great big strong man that holds the weight of the world on his shoulders and his back is arched and his knees are buckling and he's, he's overwhelmed by the weight of creation's being. That's not how it is with Jesus. It is not a burden for him. It is with effortless resolve that he is constantly sustaining us. The burden for Jesus was not the weight of creation, but the cruelty of sin and death, which he has defeated and one day will destroy altogether. Jesus is the creator, and because he is creator, He's, he has created in such a way that he is the firstborn of all creation. And when I read this verse and I went to the commentators, the commentators fall all over themselves trying to distance themselves from saying that, well, that Jesus really is a part of creation. That, 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 that what this really means is talking about the emphasis is on firstborn, that Jesus has authority, that he, uh, he, he has a princely authority over creation. But later in the chapter here, it says that he's the firstborn from the dead, too. And if there's any correlation between the two, Jesus really did die. So in some way, Jesus really is the firstborn of his creation. Uh, it's, it's a mystery. And we are assured by verses 16 and 17 and all of the rest of Scripture that Jesus existed with God as God within the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity. The three persons joined in indissolvable unity as one by their love, that he existed with God as God before all creation, and that without creation, Jesus would still exist. But without Jesus, creation could not exist. And there is always a divide between the creator and the creation. And yet, we are told in Philippians 2, chapter 7, that Jesus emptied himself to join with his creation in a very unique way that preserved his deity as he entered into his creation. And maybe the process of it began before the incarnation itself. He was the only begotten, meaning he was the unique, never before and never to happen again. His incarnation was not an afterthought. It was not a plan B because we screwed up. It was, his incarnation was the fulfillment of Jesus' embrace of his creation, even before he became Mary's baby. Jesus was the firstborn, intentionally and intimately connected by his love to his creative work from the very beginning. His first created efforts started within himself in some way. How this could be like the incarnation itself is just is complete mystery. And it is better to just say the words, to know they are true, but not try to figure it out. When, 
Even when, when we try to figure out how a living thing works, we, we dissect it. Well, when you dissect a living thing, you kill a living thing. And by virtue of that very dissection, you destroy the very thing that you're trying to understand. In ideas like this, it's best to just accept what the Bible says, wonder at the glory of it, and to realize that what it means is there is an intimacy that continues between our God creator and his creation that is more real and more powerful than we, we get at first glance. He is the first. He is the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the creator and he is the creator. He is the firstborn of all creation. And in this way, Jesus is the image, the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the creator and the firstborn. He is God and he is man. He is all in all. He is the fullness of all fullness. And when we see Jesus, we see God. We see the Father. We see all of the Trinity. We see the God that exists, that Jesus refers to as the Father, the one who is virtually inexpressible because he he is so much more than what we can comprehend. But in Jesus, we understand and we see the Father. When Jesus insisted that he wanted to take our children into his arms, wriggling, loud, runny-nosed, full of questions and frank observations, when he insisted that he actually wanted to hold them, and he rebuked his disciples and wanted to spare him the indignity, when he insisted by, that he would take them and one by one put his hand on them and bless them, we saw how the Father truly thinks about us. When Jesus chose to turn water into wine at the wedding reception, we learned that he was not a somber God who frowns on our joy, even when it is not even particularly religious. Jesus warned, and, and throughout Scripture, God warns over and over again against the sin of the lifestyle of drunkenness, but God never embraces austerity, and Jesus certainly didn't. As a matter of fact, it was one of the criticisms that the Pharisees leveled against Jesus, that he was a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus came that we might have life and have it in abundance. He restored sight he strengthened limbs, he cleansed skin, and even brought us back from the dead. He taught us that life is a gift. Even when it is burdened by sin, it is still a gift to be lived with joy, a gift to be lived out with joy. And this is how God thinks about us. This is how God thinks about his creation. After that last supper with his disciples, he stripped down like a household slave. He took a towel and a basin of water, and then one by one he washed his own servants, his own disciples' feet, even those of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. He who revealed the heart of the Father taught us by example that there is no shame in being a servant. As a matter of fact, Quite the opposite. There is great 
honor and doing the lowest, most demeaning tasks if we do it with love in his name. Jesus drove the religious moneymakers out of the temple with a whip. He scolded the Pharisees and the scribes. He spoke of a coming day of judgment when the outraged love of God's wounded heart will cast all evil and all evildoers out of his sight into inconsolable sorrow, pain, and weeping. Jesus said this. But he comforted and he encouraged all who would repent of their selfish pride and their hurtful deeds and follow him. Those who mourned, he comforted. Those whose brokenness had destroyed all hope, he healed so long as, so, so completely. He healed so completely that they couldn't help but to shout and to sing in the middle of the street with prayerful worship. This, we're not just seeing Jesus here, we're seeing who God is and how he looks at us and how he thinks about life and what his heart and what his mind are. And even though God is, the Father is, 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 is bigger than all of that, it is at least that and always will be that. Jesus is the bridge. He is the creator and the firstborn and he is the bridge between God and us. In him is the secret of who we are. And indeed, we aren't yet. We are becoming. He is making us. He is forming us. He is transforming us. We read 18 to 20 once again. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Because he is our creator, he could be the firstborn of creation. And because he was the firstborn of creation, he could be the firstborn from the dead so that he could pioneer all of the firsts. And that's what it means, uh, that he would be the first in all things. First place in uh, verse 18, he come to have first place in everything. Jesus is the pioneer of everything, of all creation, uh, even of death and rebirth. He has done it all. He is all of it in one person, and he shows us how to relate to God in all of it. He shows us the way. He is utterly qualified to lead us as creature, he is as creator, he is utterly qualified to lead us through life and through death into life. In Christ, we are not just excused from the penalty of our sin. If we are his disciple, and that to be his disciple, it means that you call out to him. Somewhere, somehow, you put it into your own words, 
And you, you confess to him it's, it's those first steps of the 12 steps. When you realize and you confess to the group, it's like taking it to God and saying, sin has me and I can't escape it. I am not even who I want to be, let alone who you want me to be, and I can't change that. Change me. And when we do that, we throw ourselves at his mercy, we give him all that we are, all that we have, and we, we tell him, we, I trust you as my savior, and I trust you as my king, my boss, my ruler, my creator. I turn myself over to you, and I trust you for your salvation. That's what it is to be a disciple and to learn from there on, to be willing to learn from him how to walk like he walks, to appreciate that when we see Jesus, we see all of God, all that God has planned for us. If we are his disciples, we live in the expectation of being released completely from sinning. We all hear the voice of, of temptation inside us, whether it's a voice of resentment, a voice of anger, a voice of lust, a voice of, of never-ending, never-satisfied greed and consumption. It may be... There may be any number of voices that call us that from the deepest part, the deepest hunger of our heart, that call out to us, tempting us to say that there is something about our happiness that God either doesn't know about or doesn't want us to have. We must find it on our own. And someday we will be free from that voice, from that absurd notion that somehow we can be God on our own. The concern, and then Satan used this, was, of course, that we would become automatons of God, that we would be just mindless zombies doing what God wants us to do. But the irony, as you read God's word and find about, out about those people who were most surrendered to his will, you find out that they were the ones who were most likely called and became partners with God in whatever project they were involved in. God listened to their prayers. God changed the direction he was going because of them. The more we surrender to him, the more us we become. The more we are individuated from him. It's, it's one of those other mysteries. But we, we are looking forward to a point at which we will be saved and the chains will be completely broken and we will no longer be at war within ourselves. And we don't even know how to think about that day. In Galatians 5 it says, For we through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Right now, we wear the righteousness of Christ like a pair of coveralls, a kindness from the Father that hides our spiritual nakedness and disfigurement and, and provides some safety for us. But we are waiting for the day that the righteousness of Christ doesn't just cover us like a garment, but it goes to the bone and the marrow of our soul. With a purification that God intends is completed and we are healthy and we are whole. When that day comes, we shall give glory and thanks to God for everything. 
And it is our greatest handicap now that we cannot see, but for the tiniest, faintest foretaste, what a great day that will be. Because if we did see it, it would be so much easier to resist temptation. Well, and yet Eve gave in, didn't she? So I don't know. But we are waiting for the day when something new happens and we are transformed to be like him. And in that day, we will find that we don't become less a person, but more. We will be closer to God. And yet, just like Jesus and the Holy Spirit are very independent personalities, still they are unified by love. We will enjoy some of the same community of the Trinity. We will be taken in. We cannot know who we are or how we fit into creation without knowing our Creator. We are made in His image, and He is the perfect image of the Father. We learn how to live well, and this should be something we carry close to our heart in these times where our culture is being unraveled like the seam on a seed sack to remember that we learn how to live well by learning from him, from his word, from his spirit, and from his people. We're going to close today's service learning a new song, and I I posted it on the Facebook page for our church uh, with a link. I don't know if, I can't remember if I sent it out in an email or not. Uh, but it's, uh, the song is, uh, the words are in your bulletin. It's on the last closing hymn page there. Jesus, strong and kind. It's a relatively new song, a couple years old. It's a song that kids can sing and understand. But it's also a powerful theological truth that that bears scrutiny. It's, it's good music and it's wonderful theology. Jesus strong and kind. So John's going to teach us that song. Will you stand as we sing? <laughs>